my name is Andy Mitchell, <clears throat> and I'm the lecturer for Practical Theology and Ministry at Whitley College, which is the Baptist Theological uh, University College. Uh, I'm also on the faculty of NATES, an Indigenous learning community, um, which is an outreach partner of Beaumaris Mordialic Baptist Church. Uh, so myself and our director of Australian programs, Naomi Wolf, uh, will be back here uh, actually in about a month's time um, to tell you a bit more about what we do there and to thank you formally. But while I'm here, let me say thank you for all of the support that this church offers Nates. Uh, it is extraordinarily meaningful to our community at Nates to have that support, not only because of what it actually uh, achieves, but uh, I could say without a doubt that this church uh, offers more support than any other um, partner that we have um, through Nates. And it's, uh, it's very meaningful to our student body to know that there is a church in this country that is uh, so supportive of them and the work that they do, the leadership that they are aspiring towards. So thank you. Um, if I look a little bit familiar, uh, it might be because I served here as the associate pastor uh, for a number of years. Uh, and Pastor Cat has very graciously invited me back um, to be a part of this series in the letter of James. <clears throat> so this morning, we're going to cover a little background on this letter before talking about this idea of wisdom that's covered uh, in this particular text from chapters 3 and 4. As I'm sure you probably know by now, this letter is one of the most controversial in the Bible. Uh, Martin Luther, the German reformer, was famous for his hatred of this text. He claimed uh, it was really an epistle of straw compared to these others, for it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. It contains not a syllable about Christ. Not once does it mention Christ, uh, except uh, in the beginning. I maintain that some Jew wrote it who probably never heard about, who probably heard about Christian people, but never encountered any. Now, Martin Luther was also uh, famously pretty anti-Semitic, so uh, some scholars question if it was the very Jewish nature of this text that, in reality, he was opposed to, rather than any of the content of it. But nevertheless, as followers of Jesus today, we apply Paul's description of Scripture as inspired by God and useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the person of God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. To the entire biblical text. So we acknowledge that there are important things for us to learn here in James' writing. Another reason this text has been controversial is that its authorship has been disputed. Although the author is named as James at the top of the text, there were a number of prominent Jameses who could have been the author. Uh, church tradition tells us that this was written by James the Righteous or James the Just, the younger brother of Jesus Christ and an elder of the church in Jerusalem. Some scholars want to attribute it to various other Jameses. It was a very common name back in the day. Uh, and still more think it might have been written with the use of an amanuensis, which is a cool word you might want to use at parties uh, to impress your friends. Um, I do all, all the time. Um, this is the name of someone who either dictates what you want to write uh, or who signs your name to a piece of work that they wrote, a bit like a ghostwriter. Yet another proposal is that all of the things mentioned in the text were said by James at some point, and uh, when he died, people compiled these sayings into one, uh, one text. Generally, though, scholarship agrees that this really was a letter written by James, the brother of Jesus, and that he was likely writing to the Jewish zealot movement that was gaining tr uh, traction across the entire Roman Empire. Um, you might remember that one of Jesus' 12 disciples was Simon the Zealot, or sometimes named Simon Zealotes, which is the, the Greek word from which we get our English, zealot. And the zealots were a political movement that started um, shortly after Jesus' birth, 
and uh, they were violently opposed to the ongoing Roman oppression of the Jewish people. They led uh, the Jewish people in the first Jewish-Roman war, which occurred in um, 66 to 73, and the movement became even more radicalised after this war. Certain offshoots of the movement were much more violent um, than the Zealots. The Sicarii, for example, routinely executed other Jewish people who they thought were collaborating with the Roman government. And James was murdered sometime around the First Jewish-Roman War, so it's possible that he was writing in order to oppose the violence that he thought was brewing. He addresses the letter to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, um, suggesting that the Jewish diaspora is, is also experiencing this, uh, this violent influence from this uh, political movement, the Zealots. At this time, uh, many Jews were living outside of Israel as a result of colonization and other armed conflicts, uh, and this remains true today. It's important to remember, I think, when reading James, that Christianity was first a Jewish movement. So James isn't writing necessarily to those who are Jewish as opposed to being Christian. Rather, he's writing to Jewish communities among whom are Jewish followers of Jesus. It's for this reason that the letter is so very Jewish in its content and its form. One of the very Jewish elements that we find in our text for this morning is this idea that jealousy or envy is at the root of all other moral failings or issues of character. In a text named the Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs, which was completed around the year 100, slander, violence and murder all emerge from jealousy. The same text addresses the issue of double-mindedness, which is another focus of James's letter. But he'd been dead for a good 40 years before this text was completed. So it's simply an indication that these ideas existed in Jewish thought at James's time. So our text this morning begins in uh, verse 13 of chapter 3 with a challenge. Who is wise and knowledgeable among you? This question is sometimes interpreted as being directed to church leaders, but um, given the context of the letter, it makes sense that it's aimed at members of the church communities um, who were claiming wisdom, perhaps the wisdom of the zealots, and who are causing conflict within the community as a result. Uh, now, we know that this is not uncommon in churches still today, that um, members claim special knowledge uh, of God in order to cause conflict. I'm sure no one here, of course, but um, the church at large, uh, you'll find those people. James makes it clear that those with the wisdom that comes from a transformative relationship with God will be shown by their good lives, by your works uh, that are done with gentleness born of wisdom. And this is another important theme in James' letter, that heavenly wisdom will lead to peace. Whereas uh, from verse 14, those with envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be arrogant and lie about the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, devilish. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there will also be disorder and wickedness of every kind. Note that here, again, the beginning of these character flaws or these sinful behaviors uh, is envy. It's also interesting to note that he characterizes this false wisdom as earthly uh, and spiritual and devilish. I think they were translated slightly differently in the NIV that was read, but this last one here uh, means exactly what it sounds like. It's, it's demonic or emerging from demons. But the other two aren't normally negative concepts. 
The term that's translated earthly here is simply describing something that belongs to the realm of the earth. The biblical scholar uh, Doug Moo describes it as suggesting a narrow perspective that fails to consider God's realm and will. Similarly, the term that's translated as unspiritual here is, again, not necessarily a negative one. But here James is describing something that is insincere, where we might describe someone's sincerity as emerging from the heart. Someone might speak from the heart or they sang from the heart. In ancient Jewish thought, this sincerity comes from the soul. So for something to be not emerging from the soul, or as the NRSV has it, unspiritual, is to say that it's insincere and perhaps even in opposition to God. Uh, you might be aware that today marks the end of NAIDOC week. Um, Kat has mentioned it and, and Gwen as well. Um, the week where Australia celebrates the resilience and excellence of Indigenous Australian peoples. Um, the theme of this year's NAIDOC is For Our Elders, which has led to a, a really beautiful outpouring of love and respect for all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island elders. And the role of an elder in Indigenous communities is a really important one. And it's conceived of maybe a bit differently to the way that we might talk about an elder. For Indigenous Australians, elders embody wisdom in the way that they live. They are people that are called by their communities to learn specific knowledge so that it can be laid down at the foot of the community in order to serve them. Although they're worthy of greater honour and respect, they also function to benefit the community. So it's a reciprocal relationship. I was put in mind of the elders of the Nates community when I read James's explanation of heavenly wisdom from verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So James is describing two kinds of wisdom true wisdom that comes from God and that can be seen in the way that wise people live and that results in peace. Where false wisdom emerges uh, from envy and selfish ambition and it leads to disorder. The second kind of wisdom is insincere. It fails to consider God and opposes the work of the Spirit. So this brings us to the end of chapter 3, but it's important, I think, to remember that the chapter and the verse numbers and all of the headings, those topic headings that we get in biblical texts, are additions. And in many places, they are unhelpfully categorizing uh, lines of thought. They're grouping them in ways that may not have been the intention of the original author. And here, I think, is one of those examples. Rather than beginning a whole new train of thought, James is continuing along this theme of peace emerging from wisdom. He does so with further challenges in the form of rhetorical questions. From verse 1 of chapter 4, he asks, Those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? This term uh, that's translated cravings in the NRSV, and I think it was desires uh, in the NIV here, um, is actually just the Greek word for pleasure but with a connotation of something um, sinful and self-indulgent. And here James comes back to the idea that envy is at the core of all other sin. Writing from verse 2, you want something and you don't have it, so you commit murder. And you covet something and cannot obtain it, so you engage in disputes and conflicts. 
And here again, it's possible that James is addressing those who've picked up on the, the zealots' teaching, perhaps wholeheartedly, but it's more likely that he's addressing those who are using it or um, perhaps other teaching as well for their own ends. Interestingly, interestingly the rest of verses uh, 2 and 3 read, you don't have because you don't ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. This makes me wonder if the kind of people that James is addressing are those claiming wisdom in order to have power and honour and authority without any of the work of humble service to the community. You'll remember that at the beginning of chapter 3, he says plainly, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, for you know that we who teach will face stricter judgment. Our text this morning, uh, at least as Kat gave it to me, skipped uh, chapter 7, which speaks again to humility. James writes, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Which is a fun way to jazz up your letter. Um, Here he addresses those who are pursuing false wisdom for their own selfish ends. Uh, He wants them to seek repentance, uh, to submit to God. Because, as verse 6 tells us, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Which is uh, the conclusion of a much longer quote that comes from Proverbs chapter 3. Um, This text has clearly informed James' writing of the letter. Um, I'm going to read you a a piece of it, and you'll see how a lot of the same themes emerge from it. From Proverbs 3, 27 to 35, we get this. Don't withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Don't say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you now. Don't plan harm against your neighbor who lives trustingly beside you. Don't quarrel with anyone without cause when no harm has been done to you. Don't envy the violent and do not choose any of their ways, for the perverse are an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the abode of the righteous. Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he shows favor. The wise will inherit honor, but stubborn fools disgrace. James' um, big concern in this letter is the misguided zeal that's been born out of envy, uh, that's being fueled by this political movement of the zealots. This conflict is giving those who desire power in the church the space to take it. And so James is making it clear that wisdom that leads to further conflict in the community of faith is no wisdom at all. Instead, heavenly wisdom is the application of the knowledge of God, and this is pure and righteous, and it leads to peace. God favors those who, in humility, pursue this wisdom for the benefit of their communities. So what are we to do with this text today? Well, it's a clear warning to those of us who think that we're wise. I think it's a bit of a reality check for those of us who are seeking wisdom or knowledge, or honor, or responsibility, especially if we're trying to do it for our own ends. It, put, it puts me in mind of Jesus' description of some of the religious leaders of his day, when, uh, which we read in Luke 11. He says, Woe to you Pharisees, for you love to have the seat of honor in the synagogues, and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves on which people unknowingly walk. Such a haunting uh, image. 
I think the text here is an equal kind of wake-up call to check ourselves and our motives when claiming or seeking wisdom or honour or leadership. I think it's interesting, too, the way that James is addressing conflict to say that it emerges from envy and ambition. Tim Foster, who until recently was the assistant principal at Ridley College, um, he's a Melbourne-based Christian writer, theologian, and he writes at length about how Australian middle-class suburbanites, like us, are characterised by their selfish ambition. He writes that ambition is not simply about achievement or even material prosperity, it's about status. That is, it's about how a person is perceived in a particular society and whether or not they are regarded as being a success. As a result, it becomes very important for members of the aspirational middle class to signal their achievement with prominent displays of their success. Um, Foster describes these uh, displays in terms of things like large homes with ordered gardens, well-paying jobs, European cars, overseas holidays, private school education, so on and so forth. But I wonder how we might measure status in a suburban church. It's probably some of those things, and it's probably some some very church-specific things as well. I remember uh, when I got my job at Whitley, someone congratulated me on moving beyond pastoral ministry as if like this was the entry-level job that I took in order to like <laughs> get, the, get the better job. Um, as far as James is concerned, it's our desire for greater status in the eyes of the people around us that leads to unhealthy conflict in our communities. Foster describes the consequences of this grabbing for status uh, in the suburbs when he writes... There's a strong sense of entitlement in the suburban vision. The opportunities afforded to suburban people and the level of control they possess means that hard work is usually rewarded. This sense of entitlement generates demands, fuels self-indulgence, and distances us from those who struggle. The view develops that people who are in less fortunate circumstances are to blame and should suffer the consequences, since people get what they deserve. Thus, there is little place for grace generosity or forgiveness in the suburban ethos. A recent research project called The Open Generation um, interviewed 25,000 teenagers in 26 different countries to discern what Gen Z think about Jesus, the Bible and the church and how they see their place in the world. When asked about the person of Jesus, Australian teenagers who had nominated themselves as Christians were far more likely than their global counterparts to describe Jesus in negative terms, such as judgmental, hypocritical, and to say that he's known more for the things that he is against than for the things that he claims to be for. This is in large part due to the way that the church represents Jesus in the world, with the report describing this as the open generation's general skepticism about the church's reputation. This view represented about 20% of Australian Christian teenagers and a further 20% who are not Christians. Um, This isn't a view of the church that is specific to Gen Z, though. Um, The 17th century Jewish philosopher Spinoza, he observed this. He said, I've often wondered that persons who make boast of professing the Christian religion, namely love, joy, peace, temperance, and charity to all people, should quarrel with such rancorous animosity and display daily towards one another such bitter hatred that this, rather than the virtues which they profess, is the readiest criteria of their faith. 
I think this speaks both to the things that we choose to have conflict over, as well as the way that we go about conflict. David Sterry loves to say, and you can probably finish the quote for me, I'm sure you've all heard him say it a million times, the church ought to major in the majors and... (laughs) That's one predictable guy. That is to say that there are some central theological ideas like the birth, life, teaching, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, while others are secondary theological issues. It's often these secondary issues that people use uh, to cause conflict in the church. Elevating secondary theological issues to become the criteria by which someone's salvation or integrity or their relationship with God is judged is not an uncommon practice in the church today. But this is not how we're called to deal with one another. The fact that James doesn't specify the issue that the conflict is over here in his letter implies that he's way more concerned with the attitude that motivates this conflict, with selfish ambition, than with theological correctness. Ultimately, James tells us true wisdom is seen in the way that people live. And you and I both know this. He lists attributes of the person embodying this wisdom in verses 17 to 18 of chapter 3. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You might notice there's a similarity to Paul's list of spiritual gifts. In his letter to the Galatians, he writes about the attributes of someone who is indwelled by the Spirit of God. He says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, I think it's interesting to see what he writes next. He says, And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, competing against one another, envying one another. Here, Paul also returns to this idea that it's, it's envy and selfish desire, uh, a desire to assert ourselves over one another, that is at the core of many sins. Thankfully, in the person of Jesus, we have an antidote to envy and selfish ambition. The model he has for the way in which his followers relate to one another is based on service. In Matthew's Gospel, when the disciples are arguing over who will have places of honor in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. It will not be so among you. But whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave, just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Tim Foster writes about ambition and competition in a different way when he says this, We can continue to live exhausted lives and relentlessly pursue an elusive dream. In so doing, we perpetuate the evil that infects the world. But God has a very different vision for life that turns everything on its head. He has made this new life possible by bringing us forgiveness and defeating evil. He empowers us by his spirit to begin living it out now in the light of the future when he will make all things new. So believe that Jesus' way is the right way. Leave the old way behind and embrace the new. 
There's an opportunity for all of us, no matter how far we might have found ourselves from God, whether we wandered away with intention or wandered away blinded by selfish ambition, to find our way back to him. The beauty of Jesus' invitation into the family of God is that, to paraphrase that famous old Baptist liturgy, we can come not because we must, but because we may. Not because we are strong, but because we are weak. Not because any goodness of our own gives us a right to come, but because we need mercy and help. We can come to God because we love the Lord a little and would like to love him more. Because he loved us first and gave himself to us. The invitation is to come and meet the risen Christ, for we are his body. Let's pray together. Loving God, we are grateful for the birth, life, teaching, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We thank you that this means we can come into your family, that we stand alongside Christ, co-heirs with Christ in the kingdom of heaven. We give thanks that, God, you have empowered us by your spirit for the work of the ministry of reconciliation and that we're not called to keep seats warm in church, but called to share this vision of hope to the world. We give thanks that we are forgiven for our sin. And because of this, we are welcomed into your family and have a future hope in a world made right. So God, for all the ways in which we have allowed selfish ambition to dictate our actions, we are sorry. And we pray that God, as we go into our week, you could, by your spirit, be highlighting to us the ways in which we allow this ambition to to get in the way of, of what it really means to follow you. So we ask for your help in this, in Jesus' name. Amen.